This week on the Product Agility Podcast, we find ourselves in Lisbon, Portugal at the Productize 2023 conference, where attendees will get to hear talks from Melissa Perry, Tammy Reese, Leah Theron and Radhika Dutt, to name but four of the amazing speakers. We are here to do our talks in 10, and they're the best way for you to get the inside track and behind the scenes insights on the talks and workshops from the conferences that we partner with, so you don't miss a beat. If you're at the conference, come and find us. We're hard to miss with our podcast t-shirts. If you're not, then just enjoy these talks in 10. And who knows, maybe we'll see you at Productize 24. Today's episode of the Product Agility Podcast comes with a special gift in association with our Haaslides, your go-to engagement tool for fun, engaging and effective learning and workshop experiences. Whether I am teaching the criticality of a clear and compelling product vision or facilitating a product strategy workshop, AHA Slides always makes it a more elevating and effective experience through its polls, quizzes and brainstorming tools. Discover how AHA Slides can elevate both your in-person or remote experiences by visiting AHA Slides and use the code AHAXPROD, which is also in the show notes, for a whopping 50% off of an annual subscription. Andre, welcome to the Product Agility Podcast. We're here, as probably a lot of people already know, doing our talks in 10. And Andre, your talk, which is happening tomorrow, yep. which is funny because now I've said that, we'll have to edit that a bit out. Uh, your talk is zero to acquired in 18 months, yep. which sounds like a bit of a fairy tale yep. story, really. So in 10 minutes, can you give our listeners an overview, an insight into some of the details of your talk, but also how you arrived at maybe this situation. Yeah, so first of all, excited to be here and in talking about the talk. So I think not a lot of companies go through the process of being started and being sold in such a short period of time. And I was lucky to go through that process and I'm even luckier to look back and be able to reflect on the things that made it possible. Because in the end of the day, in the world of startups and products, everyone's looking to hit that success, that moment, that liquidity event. And the things I talk about are basically the, the systems, the changes, the ways that the team that was building this product to learn and that influenced our ability to actually being able to sell the company, see, being able to achieve the financial result, in this case for Kitsch, in that year and a half, in the 18 months. So that's kind of how the talk came to be. So tell us a little bit about Kitch. I'm sure some people are listening and yeah. wondering what this product is. I know it's specific to Portugal. Yeah, no, no. It, yeah, we, we launched Kitch. So Kitch is a food tech company. We started Kitch in 2019, before the pandemic, before we even knew the pandemic was coming, with this ambitious goal of bringing restaurants to the cloud. What we were seeing was that restaurants especially the best ones, they didn't know how to do delivery well. And their main problem was that they were full, their kitchens were packed. We couldn't do delivery. So we thought, what if we help them? What if we actually bring their kitchens outside their main space and allow those new kitchens, those dark kitchens, to be able to expand the reach of restaurants through delivery apps? And we built technology, we built the kitchens, we built the software, we built the process. And we got a big, big tailwind with COVID and the pandemic. Mm, yeah. and, and that deeply helped our ability to grow. So that's kind of the backstory of Kitch. Fascinating. Maybe we can talk about it afterwards. My, my friend did something similar okay. in the UK. Yeah, never got off the ground. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and 
How many people were around in those early days? I'm interested. How big was the company? Yeah, so the beginning were pretty small. We had four people in the founding team. We hired rather quickly another four, five people. But when we got the product out and life, we were 10 people, small team to try to do something huge, combination of online and offline software and kitchens, logistics, integrations. There's a lot of stuff going on to deal with this in the midst of a transitioning world Mm. from like everything was fine and suddenly we're all stuck at home. So that was a, a big change. Yeah. But you rose to the challenge. Yeah. So a big part of the talk is on how the way we reacted to certain situations basically shaped our culture, the way we executed our performance and led to our outcome. One example that I talk in my talk is how literally in 24 hours, we lost every single customer because the problem we're trying to solve was capacity, was restaurants couldn't serve enough people so they couldn't do delivery. And suddenly in literally one day, everything closed. The government said restaurants Mm. can actually be open and every single customer called us and said, we don't need you anymore. We don't need the extra capacity. And we literally had 24 hours to change everything in working for the last three, six months to be able to adapt to this new world. And I don't think if we decide that way, if we didn't do the hard choice that moment, instead of the easy choice, we would have maybe died right mm. there. So I think rising to the, the challenge is more about how the team reacted and how that shaped our way of looking at challenges, how it changed our ambition, how it created for us what I call unbelievable timelines, how it made us choose to go after big, bold, airy goals. And yeah, that kind of shaped the rest of the 18 months that led to a really great outcome. That's a fascinating point you raise there, is that you were in a situation, unprecedented global change, where your business model was not a viable business model given the changes that you were being faced with. And under, I guess, a lot of pressure, very stressful times, you were able to get together and make that decision to pivot probably maybe doesn't do it justice. You know, a significant shift in your approach to running the business and what you're, how you're going to achieve success or viability mm-hmm. now what i'm really interested in and maybe this may not be part of your talk but that decision making process at that point in time you know or given that decision shaped the, your culture and the way you were operated into the future how did you make that decision who was involved because people struggle to make decisions when there is a crisis, it's easier to make decisions because there's pressure. But how people then go through a process of making a decision is what I'm very fascinated in. So how, what was it like? What process did you go through to make that decision? Funny, the funny thing is the process to get to that decision actually didn't start in the moment you had to make the decision. It started the moment that you chose the people you wanted to partner with and bring on board and the type of people and the level of trust and the level of empowerment and the, the environment that you create that allows anyone to be able to make that decision. I think one of the main factors that led people to look at this situation, truly losing all customers, having to decide that we need to pivot, we need to pivot now, we need to start building on a new way or today instead of like next week, 
that fearless reaction had to do a lot with people that were in the team that brought in and the system and the culture that we created that empowered those people to make those decisions. I don't think it was someone, it wasn't me, it wasn't CEO saying, we need to do this. It was literally saying, we need to act this way. We need to tackle, we need to change, we need to pivot, we need to react right now. And I think that is maybe one of the big insights of the talk is like the way people feel like they have to decide and the way they decide and the way they react to this real-time change makes or breaks the probability of success. I think that's kind of how we see it. Love the you used the word fearless. Yeah. Which is a bold word g- yeah. given the context that yeah. you were in. And there's much to, love to delve into that. Maybe we shall move on because we haven't got a lot of time yeah. left. What do you think that people who come along to your talk are going to be surprised that you'll be sharing? Yeah, I think for, for product people, I'm going to... Most of the lessons I'm, I'm bringing are a bit contrarian, but the biggest one is maybe the third one, which is silver bullets exist. And I think in, in the product world, this is kind of forbidden. Mm-hmm. Like silver bullets don't exist, and I disagree. They, they do exist. Now, the typical theory, the typical processes, they don't allow silver bullets to exist because silver bullets, they're hidden in a place where the risk-reward doesn't compensate. And sometimes you got to be fearless, you got to be bold, you got to bet in a place where technically and theoretically the risk-reward isn't there, but something happens. Maybe you hit some instant PMF. Maybe you have an unfair advantage that makes the theory or the process not allow you to bet there, but you bet anyways. And suddenly that two-by-two matrix of risk-reward, it skyrockets to a place where this is insane. leads to massive growth. And one of our stories has to do with the way we uncovered the silver bullet. We got to an instant PMF. And I think that's, for example, one of the things that is kind of going to be a bit of a surprise. Tim, that's because I'm a nerd, right? Yeah. There's a, that silver bullets thing. It was one of the, it, re, it rose in popularity in the kind of tech world back mm-hmm. in the 80s or 90s, I think, mm-hmm. with a guy called Fred Brooks, mm. who wrote an essay called No Silver Bullet. Mm. It's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal read even yeah. now. But I mean, in tech, yeah. I think there was always, they still do look for a silver bullet yeah, with things. Yeah. And I think it, maybe it's harder there. But when I think of tech and we think about delivery and your mm-hmm. ability to pivot as an organization, you must have been pretty nimble. Right from a from a technology kind of standpoint, in order yeah. for you to shift or or not, like, yeah. would you say you had a level of nimbleness, like a dare I say, like agility, to the way that you were operating to enable that pivot to happen? Or one hundred percent, yeah, one hundred percent. And I think our nimbleness had to do with how empowered and how capable and how into end and almost full stack every single person within our product mm. organization was. We we were proud that. Literally 100% of our engineering team was full stack since day one. That everyone understood what product was. We called our team product first, meaning product engineers, product designers, product developers, and product managers because people were product before whatever the hard skill was. So I think the agility and the nimbleness came from the skills and the empowerment of the team rather than any process or lack of process yeah. that often people look for when trying to make teams more agile mm. or more nimble. I think this, what I love about that is that I think that's what agile was originally meant to yeah. be about, you know? And, and I then think, someone screwed it up. Oh, it's been, it's been horribly commoditized, yeah. you know? And I think the issue is, is that I think it was, agile works phenomenally and, yeah. and rather easily when you've got great people, yeah. aligned purpose, courage, humility, emotional intelligence, and you can work together and, and you've got the skills yeah. 
of an execute cross stack cross competency and the willingness to do it because you want it to survive that's when it really works it becomes more difficult when you try and paint some of that over yeah. a very different type of cultural organization people who aren't willing to learn aren't incentivized to learn and most importantly for me aren't aligned to the purpose 100 and what i'm picking up from you saying is that it's a, the joy of having a small company is that get the right people on board then they're they're, they're all for your purpose and you're all 100%. you're all heading in the same direction not because you're looking at the payoff financially, but because there's a meaningfulness in that team experience, which you can't get in many other situations in life, I feel. Yeah, 100%. Andre, time is up. Thank you so much for coming on. It's a pleasure. Uh, it's been fascinating. I'd love to learn more. Maybe we can talk more at some point. But thank you very much for coming on. If people want to find out more information about you and your story, and they're not here at Productize 23 where can they find that information? LinkedIn. That's where I'm active. Just search for my name and I'm pretty sure you'll find it. Yeah. For my kids, I feel obliged to say that you are Andre Albuquerque, which is A-L-B-U-Kirky. Yeah. Yes, that's how you spell it. I will. I heard out. Thank you very much, awesome. Andre. You've been a legend. Thank you for listening and stay tuned because we'll be back again very soon. Thank you very much for the invite. <laughs>